I had been asked by Penn to talk for 25 minutes on anything I wanted to talk about. But since it's difficult to talk about just anything, unless I'm talking with somebody, I shall read a just-completed essay called Ladies' Music. The male of nearly all species is bigger, brighter, more eloquent than the female. Consider the peacock or nightingale, the whale or minnow, the tiger or grizzly bear. There are exceptions. One breed of parrot produces a ruby-hued female, while the male is merely emerald. And in various strains of arachnid, males are not only tinier than their mates, after mating they are devoured and become quite invisible. But with virtually all mammals, the male is physically more conspicuous than the female. All mammals, that is, except humans. This is fact. Interpretations vary. That the male is gaudier in appearance does not mean he is quicker in mind. It defines his role as protector who diverts enemies away from the inconspicuous egg-sitter. Yet with certain groups, lions, for instance, the female is the provider. As to whether the lioness is less lovely than her shimmering husband is a question of taste, and a human taste at that. In mankind's high periods of art, simplicity takes precedence over the ornate. Yet even in the highest periods, the human female, through her accoutrement, has made herself more visible than the male. Is this her assertion, or is it man's permission that she is not an animal. Very early, woman became, superficially, more brilliant than her masculine counterpart, adopting a wardrobe in simulation or from the actual skins of the male animal. If at Louis XIV's court men sported spike heels and 12-inch perukes, their women bettered them with 50-foot trains and cages containing live birds woven into their spiraling headdresses. The stately saraband evolved to accommodate these clothes. And if in our 1930s female impersonators outdid each other in extravagant drag, again they were one-upped, as Parker Tyler elucidates, by somnambulist marvels like Mae West or Marlene Dietrich, who, with their feathers and scarlet fingernails, became impersonators of female impersonators. Only today, with her ardent emancipation program, does woman revert to what opponents name her natural dowdiness? Men, meanwhile, casting off gray flannels for gorgeous robes, inasmuch as they still differ from the other sex, differ from it as flowers differ. Despite what current suffragists contend, women from many points in time and space have been strong in politics. Think of Cleopatra of Egypt or Queen Balkis of Sheba, Elizabeth Tudor of England, or Catherine II of Russia, Golda Meir of Israel, or Indira Gandhi of India. Women have been strong in poetry and letters, from Sappho to Savigny, from Sand to Stein. Admittedly, there's a vast lacuna between 200 B.C. and 1600 A.D. I can think of only two women writers, both vigorously Christian, during that span, the 10th century German playwright Hroswitha, who wrote in Latin, and the 16th century Spanish mystic Teresa, who wrote in Castilian. 
But today, at least in the English-speaking world, there are as many top-notch female fictionists, not to mention critics, as male. Strong, too, have they been in visual for a shorter time. France seems first to have spawned them in the 1800s. Rosa Bonheur immediately comes to mind, then Mary Cassatt and Marie-Laurencin in the early 20th century. At present in America, there may be more good women painters than men and treated just as seriously, that is, getting the same fees. Our century has also produced scientists, anthropologists, historians, reporters, and president-shattering choreographers, impresarios, and theater specialists as dissimilar as Madame Curie, Margaret Mead, Edith Hamilton, Janet Flanner, Dorothy Day and Dorothy Thompson, Mary Vigman, Jean Rosenthal, and Jean Dalrymple. And our century gave us the philosopher Suzanne Langer, who has written as knowledgeably about music as anyone ever. Yet she has not written music. Why, when we have seen so many women long excelling in what are commonly thought to be masculine categories, have the few women composers been of such recent vintage? Is it because music, although probably the oldest art, is nevertheless the youngest, in that it is the last to have gained individuality? The composer is individual, it's hardly three centuries old, and thus corresponds to the distaff's tardy emancipation. Is it then because until modern times music everywhere was predominantly, predominantly a religious expression and in the West predominantly Christian and among Christians predominantly male? If indeed the church is a man's world, before the Renaissance it was musically not even that, but a domain of asexual anonymous contributors. Is it because, like the theater, though unlike poetry, say, or sculpture, music is an interpretive craft and women make better interpreters than they do creators, interpretation being artificial and artifice, use of makeup, of costume, of song, being more socially fitting to girls than boys? Then what of play acting, that great artifice whose golden peaks in Greece and England eschewed women completely? Is it because, again like the theater, there are problems of execution which need never be faced by poets and painters? Music, before it can exist in the ear of an audience, needs a middleman, and any composer, unless he spends his career writing solely for friends who play piano, will logically be drawn to the orchestra. Now, the orchestra is a man's world, autocratic and closed, closed by an abs ruled by an absolute despot. The orchestral player's reaction to all comers, soloist and conductor alike, is one of, you gotta show me, if to them the living composer in general is an object of contempt, the female composer is an object of derision. On this last point, an aesthetic consideration. Music which is sounded and which exists only in performance is more assertive than pictures which are mute and which exist in themselves, or than poems which are half mute and half sound. Still, the, patri the patron saint of music was a woman, the Virgin Cecilia, who died a Roman martyr 1,800 years ago. From that time until the Freudian Revolution, music was often termed a feminine art, and thus an art fit only for men to tamper with. If, even today, 
your typical male composer, and there is a type, is less extrovert, less aggressive than your average male painter, the reason lies elsewhere than in the giddy assumption that the arts they practice embody sexual identity. A rule is not conscious of itself. The white man in a white land seldom thinks of his color, while the Negro in a white land seldom thinks of anything else. By the same token, there is no white music when all music is white. Most of what most of us have heard in the Western world has been white for three millenniums. For three centuries, however, there has been black music, black, that is, when heard against a white background. The black music of Africa is not black to black Africans. We have absorbed this as slave songs, as spirituals, as jazz, and more recently as an art form by specific conservatory-trained individuals aiming for the concert hall while still, like the best Negro prose for the moment, using race as subject matter. Similarly, there is no male music because it is all male. So unquestioned is the premise that we can afford to patronize rather than resent those females who do enter the arena. I don't mean the glittering plethora of performing ladies, 90% of whom are singers, from Handel's day through Jenny Lind to Bethany Beardsley, with Marguerite Long and Myra Hess at the Ivories. Nor do I mean those black women, Ma Rainey, Josephine Baker, Mary Lou Williams, Marian Anderson, Hazel Scott, Mattie Wilda Dobbs, who have instituted new traditions with grace and force. Significantly, we don't yet find major black women soloists in the non-vocal, serious domain. No concert violinists, for example, or pianists. Although in orchestras there are some, notably the percussionist Elaine Jones, who, ever since I can remember, has been featured on the special recitals of ultra-modern music in the New York vicinity. Today, is a, an there is an international society of women's composers headed by Poland's Gracina Batshewicz. All are well-schooled, first-rate musicians. Mostly they do not use womanhood as subject matter, and they shudder at the phrase ladies' music, a classification defensively coined by men during the world-famous popularity of Chaminade's scarf dance. And yet, until around 1950, when the civil rights pot began to boil, we applauded the subtlest gesture of the creative female as we applaud the black with the condescension accorded to talking dogs. When Mormons are challenged about refusing the heavenly priesthood to Negroes, their whimsical rationale is, we refuse it also to women. What happened in 1950? The time-worn ecological scale, balancing church and state, began toppling, and ten years later splintered irreparably. By church, of course, I mean concert hall, and by state, the clubs and streets and coffee houses. All merged and blurred. Ladies were no longer treated as talking dogs since all music, including ladies, went to the dogs. Each art in lowering standards towards mass orientation coincidentally became interchangeable with each other art. Ironically, the older ladies' music, high on the crest of a liberation gap, fell into the pollution and drowned while younger talents of all sexes headed away from art. What is ladies' music? Music identifiable as being by a woman. 
it is easier to define this by first defining the more tangible lady's literature. On the one hand, it pretends to be nothing more than what is generally considered feminine, instinctive, fluffy, deals with the so-called female psychology from the inside out, and addresses itself to women readers. At worst, it is overdressed, rambling, sensational, and lax, like the prose of Hollywood columnists, Cosmopolitan, or Margaret Mitchell. At best, it bursts from an enviably tight and tailored yet excruciatingly sensitive cocoon and soars beyond category, like Virginia Woolf, Willa Cather, or the wonderful women of France from Madame de Lafayette to the all-knowing Colette. Some men write high-quality ladies' literature, poetic prose, elaborately plotted, dealing non-intellectually with feminine psychology. Pierre Louis, Oscar Wilde, Tennessee Williams. Interestingly, an author like Mary Renault, while involved exclusively with male, especially inverted male, sensibility, more tellingly than any man, elusively retains her female identity, possibly because she treats inverted love as simply love, through the sixth sense compassionately inferred in Jean Paulin's letter to the pseudonymous and supposedly unknown perpetrator of Story of Vaux. Quote, that you are a woman, I have little doubt, not so much because of the kind of detail you delight in describing, the green satin dresses, wasp waist corsets, and skirts rolled up a number of times, but rather because of something like this, the day when René abandons O to still further torments, she still manages to have enough presence of mind to notice that her lover's slippers are frayed and notes that she will have to buy him another pair. To me, such a thought seems almost unimaginable. It is something a man would never have thought of, or at least would never have dared express." Unquote. That paragraph might be a red herring. Responsible rumor maintains Paulin himself authored the story. On the other hand, ladies' literature may appear so lean of style, so businesslike of content, so precise and yet so deep of insight, so political, in short, so masculine that only a woman could be the originator. No man, not even Hemingway nor surely Kenneth Burke, feeling that impelled to assert his maleness. It used to be popular to say that Norman Mailer's writing suggested that of a repressed homosexual. Trends change quickly. A cursory reading now of, say, an American dream shows the narrator to be re a reasonably adjusted heterosexual posing as a repressed homosexual. Mary McCarthy has been said to perform in manly style, as have Bridget Brophy, Susan Sontag, Hannah Arendt, for nuisance value, include Diana Trilling, though not Doris Lessing or Simone de Beauvoir, who are too baroque, too long-winded. Because the filtering of intelligence and originality through an economical sieve has, until recently, been considered a masculine operation, what is thought to betray these persons as female is a certain willful coldness, though that too is hardly an exclusive terrain. How about the sarcasm of GBS, Alexander Wolcott, John Simon? Women no longer hide beneath nom de plumes like the Georges Eliot and Sand, yet editors, voyeuristic and discriminatory, still consider appropriate to engage them for mutual criticism. Like Amazons in the Roman arena, they overcompensate 
Christine Garrigue's report of Anaïs Nin's diary. They over-resent Joyce Carol Oates' report on Janet Frame's novel. Or they take it upon themselves to defend their less fortunate sisters. Mrs. Trilling's Johnny-come-lately epitaph for Marilyn Monroe. Somehow this all seems unfair, unfair to themselves, since it calls forth their worst writing. They cancel each other out, like poets reviewing each other poetically. They aren't reviewing other people, but other female people. Any meanness I involved is interpreted as prejudicial, as though they were men writing about women, or whites who aren't yet permitted to dislike certain blacks on purely human terms. When Virginia Woolf turns her cutting pity on Catherine Mansfield, or Miss McCarthy clarifies with an understanding surpassing Natalie Sarot's, Natalie Sarot, they, they present exceptions proving the rule. Then what is ladies' music? The meaning of musical art is more mercurial than the meaning of any other art, so ladies' music is harder to define than ladies' anything else. Substitute music for literature in the preceding paragraphs, and you will have at least one definition. Ladies' music isn't what girls used to enjoy playing, Russell of Spring, Chopin Nocturnes, anything romantic with hands crossed. It is music by women who lack not talent but discipline, who aim at a low target like Wisteria or a robin's egg and miss the mark. As for compensatory male music by women, comparable to not Jane Austen but maybe an Iris Murdoch novel, tough music that aims high, even it, if it could once have been identified, it is now, as I have explained, lost in the international monochrome mire. There are no musical equivalents to fiction and nonfiction, so one cannot claim that women composers, as opposed to any composers, excel in certain genres of music. What is black subject matter? In fiction and essays, it is the black life viewed at present strictly problematically. In contemporary music, it is black folk material, African and American, recast into more complex molds. What is womanhood as subject matter? In sound, it must be the same as in letters, and has sense only in the programmatic or operatic music depicting a story about a woman. Now the fact that Louise Talma chose to compose a tragedy about Alcestis, as did Martha Graham, who has also choreographed climaxes in the lives of virtually every female monster from Medea to Emily Dickinson, need not imply that these creators are involved in women's creation any more than Euripides or Racine was so involved. Nor is Miriam Gideon, when setting to music the verses of Francis Thompson, invading a man's territory. Music is the most sexless of the arts. The meaning of that sentence lies in its meaninglessness. It would be meaningless to contend the same of any representational art. With men, the ridiculous is usually conscious satire. Harpo Marx, Victor Borga. And while some women also display method in their madness, Anna Russell, Joe Stafford, it's difficult to find examples of the converse, men whose tackiness is innocent. Surely Liberace is not fooled by his image. If Wanda Landowska, like the London woman, was on close terms with the dead, she also delivered the goods. This, despite elaborate theatrics, which, for all we know, were standard 19th century fare. I first saw her in 1944. Emerging onto the stage of Town Hall, she spent a full four minutes gliding slow motion toward her lamplit harpsichord, during which she leered like a snake charmer at a public, whose accompanying applause was undiminishing. 
sat down upon seven gold pillows, stood up again to remove one pillow which she cast on the floor, reseated herself, poised her right hand to play, froze it in midair, replaced it in her lap, and turned again toward us. Long pause. Last night, said she, Johann Sebastian Bach came to me. For several hours we compared the fruits of our mutual study. He then bequeathed to me the registrations and fingerings which I will perform and which you will hear for the first time this evening. From the audience an abject sigh of thanks. From the stage a recital which practiced what it promised. Hers was the grand authenticity which anticipated and thus automatically disqualified all sister colleagues. The unsolicited verse I receive from poetasters, eager for song settings and, by indirection in their fantasy logic, avid for fortune, is mostly by women over 60 whose subject matter is the American flag. Still another breed of musical woman is the composer's widow. She is usually a naturalized German-American who, who, often a musician herself, spends her declining years mainly promoting her late husband's pieces. The Mrs. Weigel, Schillinger, Weil, Itor Kahn, de Hartmann, Mahler, Berg. From the Industrial Revolution until 1950, the artist has commonly been accepted, rejected, as an alienated decoration. Art, accordingly, was the sole ground whereon men and women theoretically met with equality. In fact, as I have tried to show, women suffered discrimination in art as elsewhere. Less, perhaps, in the silent arts, painting and writing, which can be practiced in hiding, than in the noisy ones, theater and musical performance, which require a personal and assertive presence. Such a presence will be, almost automatically, eccentric, bigger than life, a Streisand, a Leontine Price, or against triads, a black woman playwright like Lorraine Hansberry, whose untimely end followed a certain logic. Why then, finally, so few women in the creative musical field? The answer is clear. Whereas poems, even great poems, can be completed in haste at a supermarket or in the maternity ward, and whereas pictures, especially terrible ones, can be drawn by literally anyone from age one to a hundred, because writing and drawing are languages integral to everyone's everyday life, Musical composition, great or terrible, is not a language for dabblers. A minimum of professionality and a maximum of time are required to produce a communicable score. If, as is generally conceded, the bringing into existence of a two-hour opera from conception to production is a matter of around three years comprised of ten-hour days, days absorbed in the highly technical questions of not only composition, but of instrumentation, piano-vocal reduction, supervision of orchestra extraction and copy, interminable conferences and sectional rehearsals, it is hard to picture a woman achieving this proficiency, proficiency in her art while raising a family with the comparatively unneurotic ease of her sisters in poetry. If gift knows no gender, neither does lack of gift. When music reaches, as it threatens, the point of gratuitous, gratuitous simplicism now reached by other arts, then talent will be more indistinguishable than the sexes have become, and nobody will know or care who composed what. Still, that may indicate the route toward an ideal society where, according to Freud, art will no longer be necessary. 